topic is after we talk about whatever we did that was productive. So did anyone do anything productive? Is it actually, have we actually made episode 15? Yeah, this is episode 15. Wow. Only, it's amazing it what happens. Year, but. <laughs> it's amazing what happens when you record consistently, how quickly that number goes up. Yeah. I was going to say like, I feel like we've been doing this for a while, but we're only at episode 15. <laughs> <laughs> we had some rough months a couple of uh, months ago. Yeah. yeah we oh no, we've only been doing this for Almost a year. June twelfth, two thousand sixteen was so nine months. Yeah. Okay. So, right, but we're still far off. I, but was anyone productive? <laughs> a little bit. You usually are. Uh, uh, I I'm kind of stuck on a place because I don't know. Like, I want to do something different than I have done with it in the past, but I don't know what I want that to be. So I'm just kind of stuck. Yeah. I I was thinking about my uh, Dragon Age copycat story. It's like, this is really fun. I want to do something with it. But I'm still stuck with the not having a plot part. Screw plot. Sky City story that I did and or I was like working on. City. Yeah, it's like, I just I decided to make a, a little bit of changes in the world building. It's like, oh, that's really fun, too. I could just do that. I probably have a lot more problems, but I don't know what those problems are. Because guess what? I don't have a plot. Again? This is my biggest problem. It's like, I I can come up with worlds or characters. Sometimes can come up with a magic system. My biggest problem is plot. World builder's disease. Yes. I got about a thousand words written on my vampire story. Ooh. Yay! That's a good amount of words. Went, I'm doing the opposite of Nano on this one and trying to actually care about every word I put in. Mm. It's a good experiment considering how many times you've done Nano. <laughs> All right. Uh, so just try to write just carefully. Yeah. So this this episode topic is going to be a discussion on style, and, and I wanted to do it like just a style that is different from ours because I think that'd be a little bit more interesting or uh, product uh, something more enlightening would come about. But then I have to kind of just find what style is, and it's a little hard. It's not just voice and characters and everything but it's kind of also takes into account structure or even just the plot types and character types it's kind of just an amalgamation of everything that comes out of the novel that isn't just the details of the novel yeah it's a kind of not really going to be very helpful i think i think it's just gonna be a really relaxed discussion about what we can like i don't know colin you were talking about glenn cook and you can try oh. to Start that. We're going straight in? Yes. All right. So I've only read Black Company. For anyone else who's actually read Glenn Cook. Um, How many books is that? Ten, I believe. Um, one of the strangest things he does, and it's just the entire series, because it's told from the point of view of the analyst, who is, it essentially reads like a recording of the events after they happened. There's very little narration that it's almost just you're being told what happened to them and it's not telling so much as it's he tends to gloss over what you'd expect to be the action scenes so you'll get to the big climactic part and then he kind of just tells you and then they attacked us here and we beat them back and like he doesn't dive into the detail of the action he focuses more on the characters and because it's a band of mercenaries he focuses more on the interactions of the characters and the individual level but he doesn't actually get too in the present moment it's strange and hard to describe but it it works because the characters are so fun and interesting so is it like if there's a brutal battle but he kind of glosses over and lets you fill in the details yeah and and but then that kind of you fill in the details from what you find out happens afterward. Like if someone died in a really brutal way, it was a very difficult battle, obviously, yeah. or something like that. Well, I mean, 
I don't want to spoil too much, but the last book, a main, a major character dies in a disgustingly brutal way. And it's, I mean, it's just like a two paragraphs and he moves on. Hmm. Like then they went in there and boiling oil poured down and we were very sad. It was disgusting. And then we carried on. It's like, okay. So does that have an effect of like a character that you really care about? He died in a terrible way and then like not getting a whole lot of emotional impact from it. I think that's a big part of the theme of the last book because it's called soldiers live with the tagline and wonder why. Mm. And it's very much about how embittered and disgruntled the guy is at this point. And I think the detachment is kind of a part of the sense of just how far this guy's come and how little he has left in him emotionally. Hmm. Okay. But, I mean, for the most part, that's how the stories go. Yeah. Um, you're talking about travelogue or like things being told afterwards is... Uh, thing that sometimes are I, some type of genre of book is basically a diary that you're reading of the characters and they're telling everything that happens but Stephen Bruce is one of the, the writers that's like I don't know how he does what he does but I love him anyway <laughs> and one of his books is called Agyar it's standalone it's A-G-Y-A-R and it was one of the most bizarre books I have ever read it's fairly short. You can read it in like a, a day if you try. And it was basically the premise of how the story is being told is a guy took over his old house and he found a typewriter and he decided to sit down and start typing what's going on, including all of the like minor misspellings like, oh, shit, this is a little harder than I thought it would be because having to push down on the keys. Yeah. And it, it, it's really weird. Um, Max Brooks, like World War Z. Is kind of written that way, where it's 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 interview based. So like, the guy is going back and interviewing the major players of the zombie wars and stuff, and so mm-hmm. so it's an interesting way to do it because you know the interviews kind of progress through time, and you do have some one-off interviews, but then you have some interviews with the same people over as they get farther down the road, you know. So mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't know if I could do that. But it would seem like a way, an interesting way to do it because you're able to bring in so many different voices and your chapter, they don't necessarily have to fit together perfectly. It allows some freedom. Like, he's not telling you a solid narrated story. Right. It's telling you about something that happened, but all the little individual pieces that occurred during it. Right. And like in World War Z, it's, it's interview style. So yeah. what's actually what makes the, like the audio book really cool is they have a different actor, voice actor for every person. So you have the interview interviewer who's the same voice and you have all these different people who are the interviewees. So it's, it's sort of like that, you know, reading a transcript almost where these people are talking about what happened. And plus when you're in rice books. No. Okay. What? I've read, uh, Interview with a Vampire and The Vampire Listat. It's only two out of however many she actually wrote, but Interview with a Vampire is literally just an interview. The entire thing, minus a couple of interlude chapters, is literally a dude dictating to like a, a person with a tape recorder. Right. So the entire book is dialogue. And one, one reason why that's an interesting style, to me at least, is you can get really... Because it is question answer, you can get really pointed with figuring out why characters did things. Because you can be like, hey, the reader is going to want to ask this question, so I can just ask it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, but he doesn't. The The kid, I don't think, I even remember if he ever got a name in the book. He's just sitting there, and it's just uh, the other dude, the vampire, talking. I can't remember his name at the moment. Uh, Brad I- Pitt's character. <laughs> One of my favorite stories, it's a old children's book. Uh, it's called On the Way Home. I forget who writes it. It's like, I don't know where it came from. It was just in my house. And I've always loved it. But it's told from the point of view of this kid telling this group of this village he's staying in his adventures. And 
so you get the two separate times, but like at the emotional moments, he pulls back to the character around the fire and the reaction of the people in the circle around him and how they're reacting to how emotional his story is for him. And it's just really well done to pull those breaks like that. Yeah, I mean, that's how you show emotional information is like showing how people are reacting to it. But I don't know, one of the things that just kind of baffled me about Interview with the Vampire is like if I was writing that book, I would have like much the way that um, Patrick Rothfuss is writing his book is that there's a story of someone talking and then it just launches into first person basic prose. So as, she's weird, but even in like the Vampire Lestat, it was told in a first person, but there were still giant sections that were just told as dialogue. She's weird. So you're saying it would be difficult for you to try to do that? I just, it seems like a lot of extra work. Like literally every single paragraph starts with a quotation mark. <laughs> Why? <laughs> you take that out, nothing would have changed. I don't know. It just seemed really an odd choice, but she stuck with it a lot. I'm trying to find you about that book so I can plug it without with the actual name. <laughs> right. Um, Jacob, is there any stylistic things that just kind of baffle you? Oh. Uh, I mean, especially when it comes to like uh, descriptions. Someone like uh, Ayn Rand is crazy about it because she'll have like she'll be describing a building for like four pages, <laughs> like, but it's not it's not annoying like J.K. Rowling explaining something. I don't know why, but like one feels vibrant and one feels just like you're getting beat over the head with a club. It's, yeah, that's Atlas Shrugged, right? <laughs> Well, I, I mean, haven't read that book, but the joke was there. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, it is. I mean, the book itself is a murder weapon. You could definitely defend your home with that book. It's so thick. But it's just, I don't know. Both are very wordy, but one type of wordy annoys me, and the other one doesn't annoy me nearly as bad. And Ayn Rand doesn't annoy you? As bad. Get more fortitude than most people. <laughs> I I've read a little bit of Ayn Rand, not much. Like it was well, there's one short story that I can't remember what the hell it was called, yeah, and then there was like I only read like half of a book, and I only read them because of like an English class or something. And I don't remember her being very anything resembling J.K. Rowling. It's just well, I I would say that they're they're both wordy. That's probably like. That's the only the like the stylistic things that are the same where like they're both they both use a lot of words and it gets really like especially for me it just annoys the hell out of me with Rowling. Like I just really <laughs> That's why I got like I just quit reading him. Like after Goblet of Fire is like, screw this. I don't care anymore. You just shut up. Just shut up, please. Shut up. <laughs> so I I don't know. I thought Rowling was, it's very inoffensive and nice, but always, it really still felt like fairy tale almost. And just like well, constantly the descriptions of, say, Diagon Alley or whatever, it, it always sounded very magical. It's just, just, it always fit the tone. But, um. Well, I mean, yeah, that might be true, but I'm just like, uh, still, just like, just shut up. Like it might fit. It just it just doesn't work for. It just didn't work for me. And there's just some authors that are like that. It just doesn't work for me. Yeah. Have you guys? I assume Colin has, but I'm he's going to chime in. Older fantasy novels that have like really dense description before anything happens. Like they get into a new area, and then they're going to spend three or four pages describing every detail of the area before they launch again into the story. Like, that was just the pacing of those older novels. Well, I was actually, with that, I think more of, um, in particular, Lies of Locke Lamora does that, and that's not an old one. He tends to begin each chapter with a long description of some aspect of the city before he gets into the action. Well, another person who's right. kind of like that is um, Tolkien. Like, he likes to describe yeah. everything. Yeah, and I think Tolkien and Tolkien-inspired people is more like what I'm thinking of. Like, I, I 
can't remember for certain, but I think things like uh, Wheel of Time did that. And I also remember A Big Offender being uh, the Sword of Truth series. Don't read that series. Didn't read those. That's, <laughs> Don't yeah. read them. Don't. <laughs> but it's like kind of like just that the characters got into a new area and then that had to be described in absolute detail before they could actually do anything. You couldn't just have a couple of nice words and then let everything else fill in. You couldn't just describe them as they came up. No, every crevice needed to be covered. Blech. Well, and that's another just interesting like style thing we can talk about is some some people are describers when they're talking about their work and some people are passive and sort of describe the world as the person moves through it instead of explaining what they're seeing and then having less explanation and more interaction after the big explanation. So do do you paint the picture and then put the person in there or do you paint it while the person is walking through it? I guess it depends on whether you want what happens to be more objective and disconnected from the character or it is really tied to what the character is thinking about and therefore what is important. Like something that Stephen Bruce does is like since it is so tied to Vlad Taltris's experience it's all first person that there are several times that like oh when did that appear because he wasn't paying attention to it before and that it feels very human that way because everyone has feelings like that versus a much more objective disconnected description of what is factually happening and you have to fill in what the character is feeling otherwise um but the mention of uh, Liza Lakamora and also Stephen Bruce is that both of them like will have a, a section of something, say a chapter, and then they'll just seem to break up their chapters into smaller sections that have specific purposes. Like Liza Lakamora would start with a flashback, right, Colin? Is usually some sort yeah. of flashback to childhood, and then a separate section would have something about like the the city. And everything that happens, like the history of it. And then after that, they would launch into the more present day story and sometimes back and forth and back and forth. I think that's one of my favorite parts about Liza Lockamore is how he does that. And it seems like he's just blatantly breaking the rules of sh- uh, telling and showing. <laughs> so, but, but they get away with it. Ruth does that too all the time. Like in the middle of a conversation, it's like, oh, that thing appears, that magical thing. Line breaks. And a page or so of explanation of what this thing was and its history. And then it launches right back into the conversation. Feels, and it never bothers me. It feels very disjointed, though, from someone who hasn't read it. It just seems like really bizarre. I guess, but I don't know. I've been reading these books since I was like 14. And I'm paying attention to it now because I'm trying to learn from it. And I would never feel confident in doing that. But he does it. And I love it. And it baffles me, <laughs> which is why we're discussing this, because maybe True. I can figure this out. I think it works. It's, I mean, it works because it's interesting. I guess. And there's also there's so much of the, the voice of the character inside of it that I think that helps. Yeah, that makes sense. The voice is something else I'm also insecure about. <laughs> it didn't help that uh, TJ told us it's the hardest thing to fix. Yeah. <laughs> so make sure you like, figure out how to do it. It's just, I think since then I've been going like, I don't know if I have a voice. <laughs> yeah, that was a depressing episode. I'm like, mm, yeah, well, this is never going to happen for me. <laughs> I write way too slow. Do you intend to finish your book? Yes, I will finish my book. Right, you're already ahead of George R. R. Martin at this point. <laughs> uh, my goal is to at least have the first round of edits done by Gen Con. Not that I'm necessarily going to Gen Con. It's just a decent time for me to, like, here's a break in the world, you know. And if I do go to Gen Con, I can be, maybe, like, give it to some people in author's row. Yeah. I'd like to be to the point of feeling I can actually show it off to people. I don't know if that will ever happen anymore, but I'm trying. If ever I can come up with a plot. <laughs> uh, that should not be the hard part. It is. It is for me because like, oh, I, I keep thinking, it's like, but, but why would these people do that? 
I don't have a reason. I need a conflict here. But why would these people make conflict? Sometimes the conflict is the simplest part, right? Depending. Even if, like, okay, for the Dragon Age one, copycat, I've got two main conflicts. One of them is the Darkspawn copycat, zombie things, and then the other one is impending war. And I have an impending war just because those two conflicts make each other worse, and I like that. But the rest of the surrounding and any of the details that follow, I have no clue. Because if I set up, like, why would this war be happening? I don't know. Why would... What? It's hard for me to put them in positions that make yeah, them go to war. Figure it out later. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> Can't do that. <laughs> I need this figured out before I can work on it, because otherwise I just throw everything away. And that, that, that hurts too much. See, so here's a, here's a style thing. Um, so like Game of Thrones, each chapter is a different person pretty much, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's something I've actually, my, in the last two weeks, my book has had a bit of an existential crisis. So I've been thinking about doing something similar. And so like, I don't know if I can if I can actually pull that off to where I follow Corlex and the Reaper as they're they start you know on their collision course and then I don't know it'd be an interesting way to get more world building in but I don't know if it's actually a good thing to do. Yeah, just because you have world building doesn't mean it's necessary for everyone to understand it, which is a hard lesson to follow. Go ahead, Malazan, if you wanna do that lesson. <laughs> But say, since Corlex and the Reaper are on opposite sides, and you currently have like, the Reaper as the bad guy, girl, whatever, um, you are going to then paint her as someone to be sympathetic towards if you put her in as a point of view character. Right. So it's, That's why I'm like, Arr. Yeah, like how much black and white versus morally gray do you want the situation to be? Right. Right. I don't know yet. That's why I what said. Do you think of situations in which, um, the, the whatever character it is talks directly to the reader or viewer, such oh. as a House of Cards in Frank Underwood, or I've never tried to break the fourth wall, but it's it's really cool when you can do it. Like it was Deadpool. hilarious in Deadpool, right? Deadpool. Is it? I mean, I think there's two distinctly separate. You've got straight break in the fourth wall where you address the reader. And then you've got the internal monologues in some characters' heads where they speak. It's the author writing to the reader, but it's still in the character's head, so it's not quite breaking the fourth wall. Well, expand on that last part again. More when the character is making the observations to himself that the reader is. It's hard to describe. There's... It tends to be the voice of a character who internally explain says what you are feeling so that it almost feels like he's directing it to you, but he's not quite straight saying, hey, reader. I can't quite think of any examples right now, but... Mm -hmm. So, like, are you talking about, say, maybe the Black Company will fit this, but since it's kind of a journal and they expect someone to be reading it, perhaps, like, more of yeah, a report, I guess. I can see that, like, yeah. The character make an annotation to whoever is reading it because it's written in a way that they expect it to be read. Yeah. I like as you get the black company, it's a different topic I'll talk about, but the point of view switches by book more than anything because the books tend to be written by one of the analysts. So mm -hmm. as the story goes on, there's a new analyst writing the books and he'll comment about how he went back and cleaned up the last analyst's work. Which is like, so did the book I just read have your edits in it? <laughs> huh. Very meta. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the same thing with Agyar. Again, it's like, since he's just typing into a typewriter for his own benefit, but he still kind of talks to the reader because he expects at some point. And it's a very, very strange book. I had no idea it was happening until about halfway through. A very strange book. I'm not telling anything else. <laughs> God, it was bizarre. I think he wrote it over a course of six weeks. That's how long it took him to write it. Did he write it on a real typewriter? I don't know. 
That would be so. cool. <laughs> this is way off topic, but I found this keyboard. It's like a Bluetooth wireless keyboard that they... It is also mechanical, but they use old typewriter keys on. And now it's like nice. the only thing I want. <laughs> Loving my new mechanical keyboard. They are nice. But I do, I do blame it for 90% of my typos at this point. Oh, yeah. Oh, I could barely type on it for about two weeks after I got my first one. <laughs> oh, God. And if I'm playing Rocket League with the controller, and I just so much as touch the keyboard, it like pops up. And I'm like, ah, my... <laughs> Extremely sensitive. I'm failing at finding this book because it's so so obscure. I do have it down cellar, so I should go get that before plug the author. Um, But on the topic of Black Company, I was going to mention also his use of point of of, uh, points of view is. I've never seen a series that so feels so structured when it comes to points of view. As in the first book, uh, the bottomist Black Company is told straight from the point of view of the analyst, and that's it. The second book, you get brief interludes from a different character, and from that point onward, most of the books tend to have the primary analyst and then the occasional point of view. But it's very... It feels very structured in each point of he doesn't ever have more than three, maybe four points of view. And even then they only have tiny bits in it. The majority of it's told from the analyst's point of view. But it's just it's unusual how it feels like he limits himself, but it's intentional, obviously. Mm-hmm. For as expansive a series as the Black Company is, you don't see too often a single narration. I feel like fancy authors can't resist jumping around characters. Hmm. Yeah, jumping characters is an interesting thing. I've read lots of books that do it. Kind of seemed very normal for a while, and then I kind of feel like they fell out of fashion or something. Yeah, I don't read too many books that don't move points but, of view. I mean, Black Company's been out for a couple decades, right? Yeah, there was the 80s, I believe. Yes, but it seems like that's when it was popular. He doesn't, like, I think the last book, you've got the main character, and then, I mean, every once in a blue moon, he'll jump to the point of view of the bad guys for, like, three-page chapters, just to touch base on a few things, and that's it. Mm-hmm. I read one one book I read, is at the, the end of the Chronicles of Chizuli series by Jennifer Roberson. It was written first person on a male character. And then he was in a, an accident and lost his memory. And then it was first person, a female character that was taking care of him. And it just like, I hadn't come across such a strict uh, perspective change when it hadn't happened anywhere else in the book before. And it was very strange. First person point of view shifts. That's bold. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Um, I also hate. Well, no, I don't hate first person. I don't mind it. I just can't write it. I've tried. Present tense sucks. I I mean, as much as I liked the first Hunger Books, don't get me going on the other ones, (laughs) I I still don't, even after enjoying that book, I still don't like first person and present tense. It's just... I feel like a lot of things with present tense is that they end up doing word choices that Trish try to highlight the fact that it's present tense. Like, uh, I look at the books that are on the bookshelf I know they're on the bookshelf. I look at the books on the bookshelf, makes much more sense, but you don't need to have R on it because it's, you're just trying to highlight the fact it's present tense again, and I get like annoyed with it. Being on the bookshelf in front of me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, present tense, just uh. Yeah. I can't remember who did it because I didn't read it, but I remember in. Um, one of the Brandon Sanderson lecture things that I was watching a few months ago, can't remember which topic it was, but I think it was talking about voice or something about characters, is that there was a book that had an autistic character. And it was in point of view of him sometimes, but it was also in point of view of other people. And it would be, uh, I'm probably butchering this and mixing up books, but it would be a normal past tense 
for other characters. And then when it gets in the chapters that are in his point of view, it'll be present tense. And every single time you go between the tenses, you're highlighted about the fact that these people think differently. And it's like that is a very good way, good usage of tenses in order to just do that simple thing. It's like this character is a little bit different. See that? Can't remember who did it or whatever. Yeah, I mean that. I, I don't. Takes a lot of faith in yourself to be able to write that differently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I don't. Otherwise, think jumping into present tense. Like, there's plenty of books that do use present tense in brief snippets. Mm-hmm. Um, like I can't recall if Redwall did it. It's been so long. But like, just the interludes of the narration where. There's like brief tenses of present before they start telling the story. Yeah. Um, Bruce does it once in a while in the book Taltosh. I think every chapter began with a sequence that was in present tense. And then it's only like a snippet of what is actually happening in that scene. And then it goes into past tense, normal stuff. I don't know. He, he does a lot of weird, funny things with structure and <laughs> stuff. I don't understand how he gets away with anything. <laughs> You can do anything you want if you're good enough to pull it off. <laughs> and more importantly, people don't aren't annoyed by it or find it stupid. I just wondered why I'm not annoyed by it, and I don't understand. Are you a, are you annoyed that you're not annoyed? Is is that what I'm hearing? Am I annoyed by what? I said, are you annoyed that you're not annoyed? <laughs> I'm just baffled. It's like I want to. Have that ability. Why is this not bothering me? <laughs> I hate you, but I don't. This is bizarre. Yeah. Well, that was kind of me with Beauty, the new Beauty and the Beast. I've never enjoyed something I've hated so much. Uh... <laughs> uh, spoiler warning. It's pretty much, I mean, it's not a shot for shot remake, but it's pretty fucking close. What did people expect? Why wouldn't you do that? Well, the thing is, though, the stuff they do add is really interesting, and they just don't... It's like, (laughs) hey, we're going to throw one sentence that explains this, instead of actually, you know, delving into, like, some really interesting ideas. Uh, So, I don't know. It was enjoyable, I mean, but, you know, you feel kind of cheated. It's like, hmm, I could have just stayed at home and watched the (laughs) Blu-ray. Oh, shit. I don't know. It's, I'm very confused why people were so excited for that movie. It's like, yeah, it's got real people, pretty people. It's the same <laughs> I mean, story. What are you expecting? It's my favorite Disney movie. It, yeah, well, that's why. It's a, I mean, sure. it, it, and it is a real, really pretty movie. I mean, I'll give them that. The visuals are great, but I still think the animated version is prettier. Uh, and like I said, like the stuff, cause there's, there's, there are some few interesting tweaks that they do, but there, it's literally like two, like one or two lines that they'll use to explain this new thing. Just like, hmm. Yeah, this could be more interesting. I mean, it's almost like they watched the cinema sins on the original Beauty and the Beast and got, ah, we need to fix all these points. <laughs> That's what it feels like. <laughs> I can respect that, but I just don't understand how it got so much. Why are people so excited about it? Because uh, I mean, it's, I mean, as it's Beauty and the Beast. I mean, it is arguably the best Disney movie ever made. Eh. <laughs> I mean, it is the it was the first animated movie to be ever nominated for Best Picture, and it was before they expanded to the Best Picture category. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> you're, uh, you're too young. Like you, <laughs> like it is t- possible that that movie came out before I was born. When did the originally animated movie come out? I'll say like ninety two, ninety three. I was born ninety three, late ninety three. Uh, I was do what ninety one. Ninety one. Okay. Uh, yes, yeah, so I was like seven, eight years old. Like if you had been that age when it came out, you're like now you'd be like, oh yeah, fuck yeah. But now, just like, oh, uh, I just spent twenty bucks for <laughs> for nothing. <laughs> Well, no, but, I felt that way after The Force Awakens anyway, so same <laughs> annoyance. But again, I did enjoy watching it because if you're going, I mean, when you're remaking a, if you're retreading a movie that's that good, you're, that movie, the retread's not going to be terrible. So it was enjoyable in a lot of respects. 
But for the most part, it was just kind of just a retread. It's all it was was a retread. Oh, I know. It, well, we could spend an episode on that. I enjoyed <laughs> it. it for, I enjoyed it for what it was and what it set up. It. I feel like this is a weird analogous conversation to say really wanting a movie version of a book. Why do we want that so badly sometimes? Like we've had multiple episodes of that on Dresden. Because uh, we want to see it, you know, it's a different, it, I think sometimes people want definitive uh, visions of things. So like, yeah, we can all hear the description of something or Henry or, or not Henry, uh, Dresden or Thomas, or but we all <coughs> see them kind of differently. And so we want to have this definition of what they actually look like and who they are and everything else. I, I think that's part of it. Um, I'm the opposite. I, even when I'm watching a movie, I just, especially if it's a series like Harry Potter, where I'm just like, it doesn't quite look like the way I thought it would look. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's also the problem. And sometimes it's just really cool to see that It's the stuff, same story. You know? At best, it's the same story, right? I did get mad at uh, um... Deathly Hallows Part 2. Like, Neville's moment in the end, when he cuts the snake's head off. Spoilers for a book that's been out for a while. Like, that moment was so iconic for me in the books. And then they draw it out into this fight scene that just goes scrambling all over the place in the movie, and it's just like... It doesn't have the same feel to it. You're saying this about a movie that was entirely the last fight? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) That's one of the things that got me annoyed with with things like that. I hate movies that... I mean, like, if we ever got movies made out of Harry Dresden Files, we would have changes split up into two books, and that would just piss me off. Could they put the second... Could they put Ghost Story entirely in the second half of changes? <laughs> no, because you have no, to what? end. You have I to know. end on that I mean, one if, page. I mean, this is way off topic, but I if you're going to have oh, yeah. Dresden... Visualized, it can't be a movie. I don't think. No, it's got to be an HBO series or, ne- or Netflix. Or Netflix. Yeah. I want a, I want a good anime of Malazan. Anime. I don't. I don't think you could do it just like I don't think Wheel of Time could be done justice with a uh, live action. Yeah, that would be a long series. Wheel of Time. Huh. Those books can also be assault weapons. <laughs> <laughs> Especially Memory of Light. <laughs> But yeah. that goes for every single <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah. Sanderson is, he gets a lot of things with trying to, like, hit off all the check marks of high fantasy stuff. And then it gets, I don't know. Does he have a voice? It's hard for me to picture if he has voices. I think voice is his biggest weakness. Because in uh, Warbreaker. I can't really criticize Sanderson too much, but. There was there's two girl characters. They were sisters. If I was reading their chapters, I had no idea who it was, except for the fact that they were in two separate parts of the city, and that was my only clue. They sounded exactly the same. I think, like with Stormlight, I feel like he just had a checklist of popular things in fantasy and wanted to. Yes, that is exactly like, what I felt. We're gonna have big parts. We're gonna have interludes. We're gonna have epigraphs or whatever epigraphs, right? Yes. Like he just—it just feels like he was just going down a checklist and trying to squeeze everything into the series. And, and, I loved and it, it works. It works. It, but like meta thinking, it's like this is only in here because it was on a checklist. Yeah, at least he, he didn't open it up with the kid on a farm. Take that back. <laughs> what? That's how the very it's... well the fantasy series I wrote. That's just a. It opens on a farm mainly because it's a copycat of uh, Firewind Chronicles. All great stories start on a farm. This is true. Uh, I mean, yeah, some of them do. But that was one big thing on his checklist that was notably absent. <laughs> oh, even Frickin' Wheel of Time starts that way. Yeah. Of course, for anyone who's read Eye of the World, the first good half of that book you could just switch the names with Frodo and Sam and whatnot, and you wouldn't miss a beat. <laughs> there wasn't a girl in Tolkien. True. There was a couple of girls in Wheel of Time. I'll give him that. And then all the braid tugging and 
Skirt swishing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jordan. Yeah, he, he did do that too much. All right, but so if you could just steal one style element and be able to do it as well as somebody, who would it be? Steve what would it be? Because he's so different from me if I knew how to do that. But which element? It just... The fact that I'm baffled. <laughs> That's not an element. <laughs> I don't know. I'll try to try to condense it, but like he just he's so scared to break. And it works. And it it confuses me, but I love it. It's like, okay, he'll have pages and pages of just dialogue. Absolutely no dialogue tags or descriptor of what they're doing. Everything that will get just in between two characters going back and forth at each other. He does this in every book I have ever read. Does he mess up at all? Say again? Does he ever mess it up? I don't think so, but once in a while, it's like it's a little bit hard to tell who is saying what based on like paragraph breaks. Like there's a paragraph of someone talking and then there's a new line break and then someone's talking, but you have to like based on word choices, who's saying what. Most of the time it works just fine. There was entire chapters dedicated to that in uh, Terrain in Hell. I wouldn't. Was, I would be so scared to do that. Was it, it wasn't Hemingway. There's one short story, either Hemingway or I think it was Hemingway, but it's two people talking at a cafe, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. I've read it before, and we ended up reading it in one of my high school classes. And there's a point where two characters go back and forth for about 30 lines of dialogue. Midway through it, there's a sentence that could have only been spoken by the other character, but it follows his, like, uh-huh. there's just yeah. no possible explanation for ha- for that dialogue. I remember. To have switched characters, but that char- the, ne- the other character could not have said it. I remember reading something about that. I've never read the story, but I remember people talking about that expanse and no i don't think bruce has messed it up or at least not that i remember uh he just he breaks a lot of rules and it has an amalgamation of something that's i fill in a lot of the details of what's actually happening in every scene but i know just enough to be able to feel confident that i know what's going on of what things look like where things are because he doesn't explain anything except for the one he has these breaks in the chapter of like history in the middle of a, a conversation. I'm so strange. Frustrates you. <laughs> doesn't. <laughs> okay, so what's the style that you would take? You could. Okay. Because I gotta get my plug in here. <laughs> Just Stephen Erickson's ability to structure sentences in unbelievably poetic. The word choice he uses can be so archaic or just so unusual. The structure of the sentence can just baffle you. But at the same time, it just sounds beautiful. Some people love the way he writes. Some people hate it. I'm one of the ones who thinks every word he writes is poetry. His prose is uh decent it's like it's pretty good um but i remember that there was a poem in gardens of the moon the like first half that i read and the first few lines they make absolutely no sense but when you get to the end of the poem every single word makes sense and i was really impressed with that like i, I can't do poetry for shit but that was magic and i would just take his entire uh anthropological culture study and absorb it so that I can create my own cultures that feel so distinctly ideal. Old builders disease. Yes, but he 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 doesn't fall into the disease. He just has like the blessing of having it and can fulfill it without getting caught up. Oh, so it's like a magical ability that no one ever has, right? <laughs> I mean, Will Builder's disease is a bane of every writer. Uh, Jacob, what's the style you take? It's uh, your question. I would take the way Jim Butcher writes fight scenes. 
I love his style. It just feel it feels so visceral and so real when he's describing it. Like I've read fight scenes and a lot of other books, but nothing just puts you in the middle of it like a good Dresden Files fight scene. Can you possibly focus in on what exactly does that for you though? Is it like Harry's snark as he's fighting? Well, that's part of it, but it's more just word choice, the way he describes, you know, especially like when things break, like the breaking of bones or, you know, people getting hurt. Like the description of the, of the pain is just so vivid that, that you can almost feel it, you know? Mm. Yeah, he he likes to get in, you know, he's like, and he also does, he also describes the sound really well, like the, the wet snapping of sinew and bone, you know, that's, it's a, especially if you've ever broken a bone, you just go right to that sound, you know, exactly what he's talking about. I don't know, I've broken bones, but I have no idea what it sounds like, because those are just black spots in my memory. um... (laughs) For good reason. (laughs) Yeah, um, I don't know. Like his fight scenes are really fun because they feel like a, a well done action movie type thing, right? And I, you know, maybe that's part of it. I just want to be able to do what that because yeah. it it just it is fun, and you're like, yeah, because like you, especially you read some not as good authors, and you're just like the fight scenes just kind of land flat. I mean, they're cool, or like the visuals are okay, but they don't they don't grip you, you know. Mm-hmm. See, that's why I was asking if you can pinpoint the part of it that works is the thing that I think that works so well in his fight scenes is how involved Harry is in all of it. It's not just that things are happening, but like his appraisals of everything is sometimes humorous, but it's very centered in his experience. And you're basically taking that experience when you're reading it instead of people who are a bit more clumsy with it. And it's just the objective description that's not the character's. When you're third person limited, that's a key thing to keep in mind is that you're not describing a fight scene. You're describing Harry witnessing a fight scene or being part of a fight scene. Yeah. Like you can't just break off into the description of the fight because you're still in Harry's head. Yeah. Although I suppose you can do that with like third person omniscient. And that's also something that's kind of weird. Too many people do third person omniscient. Yeah. I, I See, Dune did it. I think, I don't know, does Ender's Game count as third-person omniscient? Because it, it does seem like he, once in a while, went into different people's perspectives in the same scene. But, I don't know. One of the things I like about Butcher's fight scenes is the authenticity it feels. Because every single thing Harry pulls off in a fight, you know just what it took for him to be able to do it. Mm, the sense of cost. Yeah. He builds that sense of investment that Harry's got to go through to get to where he's gotten. I think, that I think that's one of the things. It. Yeah. Um, so, I am an average-sized woman. I am significantly smaller than most men, and therefore much weaker. And it's one thing about, like, say, cost, or basically just fear of failing in a fight, that kind of, like, if I ever thought was in a fight, it would end up very badly, the outcome of it. Um, I thought you were talking from from uh, Murph's point of view for a second. Well, there's, there's, like, she's magically impressive. She's a normal vanilla person, but, like, people in real life don't exist like her. <laughs> and it's just, like, when when Harry is, like, all out, and he can't keep going, it's like, that feeling is kind of what I think it would be like in a fight. Was it Ghost Story? I think one of the things with the, not just the fight scenes, but Harry in general, is how every fight he's in, you feel like you're, like, the skin of your neck. Like, Harry is dragging himself tooth and nail to get to the end of this and not be killed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it Ghost Story where you see Murphy and the others and just, like, Harry's fucking terrifying. Like, from his point of view, you think he's squeaking by, and from everyone else's point of view, he's just blowing shit up and is like Whoa. the most powerful person in the city. Well, at the end of like Turncoat, he was thinking, "It's like, why are these people so scared of me? I'm barely passing through everything." It's like, oh, they just see the explosions and not how much it cost. <laughs> and I but, think Harry does. I mean, that's one of the things I love about Dresden is that 
sure, he's there's a lot of cost to it, but at the end of the day, he's still doing it. Yeah. I always like when things cost. I don't know, they're for... Rule of magic. Basically. It's like, oh yeah, this is how everything is happening, so I'm just going to put it in a few words and describe it. That's how you make a trendy little law. Yeah, I think um, Jordan with Wheel of Time, the magic system in that is really well done. And probably where San- Sanderson got a lot of his uh, inspiration. But like he talks all about weaves and whatnot and the magic is like you're weaving threads of power. And there's a particular scene where they're undoing a gateway and he's describing it as like you're just carefully pulling the pieces of this huge gateway of magic apart. But if you fuck up, it's going to collapse and explode. So just like slowly, piece by piece, you're pulling at this thing and it's just incredibly well described. Mm-hmm. And then it does blow up. Yeah. And then they screw up and they die. Ooh. I think well, it's no, interesting. they don't die. They just actually accidentally blow up half the other enemy force on the other side of the gateway. That was convenient. <laughs> I think it's interesting that uh, neither Colin nor I mentioned Rothfuss in this description of style. Because whatever he does, he pulls it off. I still think he gets too much credit for his prose. His prose is good. I don't know. The conversation that's the very, he had that with... first introduction of the silence in three parts is fantastically written. And once you're in the regular narration of the story, it's just any other story to me. I don't know. He has a, the stylistic, pretty descriptor type of voice. And it works. It doesn't have to be over the top for that because it would actually be a turnoff at that point, I think. So he has just a right amount. But there's conversations that Kvath has with Denna in the second book entirely in couplets. I know. (laughs) She's terrible. And that's what's so frustrating with that book is he's so madly in love with her, but you just you don't know why. Yeah, I I don't know. He really thoroughly brought Denna to life as a terrible person, and I hate her guts. Are we supposed to? So believable. Are we so supposed to? love for her like no i think we're supposed to be thinking he's a dumbass for it because congratulations everyone does so where's doors of stone so we can know know. what the hell we're supposed to feel here yeah just i think what he's gonna do is denna's gonna become sympathetic and we're gonna actually care about her it's like oh you're not such a terrible bitch it's too late (laughs) then again i said that about uh jamie lannister and now i love him yeah so that oh yeah Martin. Yeah, we've also not talked too much about him. He just, I don't know, sometimes his prose is like nice and kind of the archaic tone, but he just needs to cut half of it out. And other times Daenerys is shitting in the stream. Yeah, that's exactly Which the part that I was thinking of. still written in an archaic way. Exactly, that's exactly the part that I was thinking of. <laughs> Just uh, he uh, had the the word choice right, but it's like this does, this we don't need matter. the whole description. He does that a lot. Yeah. Also, spending like ten minutes talking about this woman's big round nipples. That it's like okay, the guy likes her. We got that five pages ago. <laughs> I'm guessing he likes large nipples because he won't shut up about them. <laughs> Have y'all have y'all seen the uh, the South Park making fun of Game of Thrones? Yeah, you should, probably should because it's pretty funny. They 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 take a baseball bat to George R. R. Martin's writing style. <laughs> <laughs> He's one of those who he gets away with half the stuff and doesn't get away with some of it. Yeah, but then there's things like I don't know. People get pissed off about other things that he does, obviously. But the fact that they're usually getting pissed off with sex scenes is just dumb. And Rothfuss gets the same hate. It's like, oh my god, you had a sex scene. How dare you? Yeah, the whole Valerian thing didn't do anything for me. I I was expecting it to be a lot worse. Because people kept talking it up. And then I read... I I don't know. It just 
I think it was executed fine. And it set up some giant parts of the story. What about style choices people have made that you don't like? Present tense. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do present tense unless you're writing for kids. Yeah, it does seem to be a YA thing, so maybe that's why I don't come across it very much. But then, which is why I'm surprised Hunger Games went for that. Still YA. But I mean, I'm thinking with present tense, you're more like. Not even middle school. Mm. I know. There's other types of style, which I feel is much more political, but it, like, it stands out to me is when, say, the Sword of Truth series, one of the reasons don't read it is that it just became an absolute anti-communist manifesto. It's like, I, okay, you get it. I, you don't like communism. They're not devils, though. <laughs> It is just, I don't know. It was so much political moralizing that the style couldn't save it. And it was, yeah. I don't know. I think that's one of the things that puts uh, um, Erickson's style. Gardens of the Moon stands separate from the rest of the series because, yes, he goes for the obscurity of inundating you with information he hasn't told you about. And that works over the course of the series because you start filling in details. But in particular, the end fight in Gardens of the Moon, you were just sorely lacking a lot of information. And when I first read it, I had no idea what the hell was going on. And having reread it, it makes so much more sense. But you can get away with trying to be obscure. But when it comes to the first book and the major fight scene, you just got to go for clarity. Yeah, actually, the thing that Erickson lost me on is that I didn't care about anything. He didn't. And therefore, I didn't care what was happening. I didn't sympathize with anyone. Yeah, he kind of trusts you to get through Guardians of the Moon and then the people who are still left are the ones you're supposed to care about. But, but you got the whole book here to, to get through. Yeah. Uh, so Jacob, what was the style that you hated? Uh, besides, besides Harry Potter. <laughs> what or about even... Harry Potter did you hate so much? She yeah, just it's... gets so redundantly wordy. Like she explains to the nth degree. It's like, okay, we we got what you were saying the first sentence. We're still on sentence ten of this description, and it's terrible. Like it just. I can't think of any. Like moments like that. I, I, yeah, me neither. The one there was one in the in near the end of Goblet of Fire that I just it just kept going and going and going. I'm just like, oh god, please shut up. Like, and she just keeps on droning and droning. I'm just like, just please, be, please stop, please. I think that's one of my least favorite things with Dresden, at least for the first half of the series, is how. He feels the need to remind you every book how certain magic things work. Right, and that's something that the, she does a lot. Sixth book, I know the beetle works because it's old. Like I understand what wizards do to technology. You don't need to tell me again. Yeah, but I think he's meaning it like intentionally so that anyone can jump in at any book right. until changes, and then he just throws that out the window. Um, yeah. But it's like, it, but I mean, it holds him back for a while. Rowling does that even worse than Butcher does, in my opinion. Like it just seems like the first like four chapters of every book are, are setting up or just rehashing the previous books in the Harry Potter universe. I don't follow that, but okay. <laughs> yeah, if you ever read the book again. But I hate it. Look at right here. Then I would love to know. Okay, I'll I'll try and will myself through it. <laughs> yeah. What was I just reading? Oh, I'm listening to the audiobook for Night of Knives, which is uh, Ian Cameron Esmont, which it's Malazan, but the other guy who does it. Mm, yeah. And there's a fight scene where you're watching from the point of view of one character who's hiding in the shadows 
as this armored demon comes up the stairs and is just killing these highly specialized assassins like nothing. And now you should know who that person is because you've seen it lead up to that. But from her point of view, she's got no idea who it is. And then the next scene is him walking up from his point of view because he's the other main character, walking up through the stairs, hanging on by dear for dear life as he just barely gets through these things. And just to see from this young and experienced character's point of view how terrifying he looks to other people is just one of the few moments, I think, in Night of Knives that his writing actually works well. Yeah, it's really fun to if you're switching characters to show what they look like when they're not in their own head. That's one of the reasons I like to switch characters once in a while. Uh, usually I do it kind of based on scene, but like you go from, like say, a character who's really nervous but trying to uh, bear through something... And then from the outside, they look really cool and collected, and it's working, and they just don't know it. It's like, I really like playing with that. One of the few times, um, like Wheel of Time with Rand Perrin and Matt, who, through like the first five books, constantly, I shouldn't say constantly, but consistently mention how they wish they were the other ones with women. Mm-hmm. And like the first time, it's like, oh, okay, that's funny. Yeah. But then, uh, like, the tenth time, it just doesn't feel authentic anymore. Yeah, it's just a running gag at that point. Yeah, so. it, it just stops working. Yep. Basically, write your women situations better than Jordan did. <laughs> Don't grow up in the era Jordan grew up in. <laughs> or the culture. Or the... Yeah, they're still anything... powerful, at least. Oh, yes, but... They're so stereotypical. They tug on their... Uh, to be fair, that's really only Nenave. I thought that was like... Nenave did the braids, and the someone braid. else did the skirts, and someone else Egg did... Egwene might something. fold the skirts a lot. Uh-uh. But it, it seemed like every single oh, no, girl... She just called him a wolf. ...had a habit shepherd. that... Yeah. They've got habits to define the fact that they're frustrated women. Yeah, yeah. This it's one thing I will credit George R. R. Martin is his quote. It's like, how do you write such strong, powerful women? It's like, well, I always think of women as people. <laughs> uh, and then I'm going to describe their big nipples. <laughs> well, admittedly, that wasn't the point of view of a character who was sleeping with her. True. And he was just really aroused at that moment by her nipples. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this podcast gets off on crazy tangents sometimes. Yes, it does. Why not? Uh, if, if we're getting off on more tangents than we are talking about style, maybe we should bring this episode to a close. <laughs> Probably a good I idea. Should, I should mention Lovecraft and his word choice in all of his stories as being anything derivative of him strikes out because they take his word choice like cyclopean and euclidean and it's like it works for him yeah but euclid was a greek person euclidean math is a thing he describes non-euclidean surfaces as like these terrifying things because he's not supposed to understand how they work right and that was before non-euclidean geometry (laughs) but like Lovecraft's word choice works for Lovecraft. But once you start describing terrors as Cyclopean, then it's just like, okay, you're just copying Lovecraft now. I mean, it still works. The word still works. I know what you mean. I mean Cyclops-like. That's the problem. It's like, it just stands out as you're just, you've read Lovecraft and now you want to emulate it. Yeah. Uh, isn't about word choice because i just thought of some other things that maybe they're not connected to style but i don't know i mean all of our topics have potential branches yeah that's why we keep doing them (laughs) all right but let's plug all the rest of our stuff like i do the justin files every other week Uh, talking about cold case yeah (laughs) we're talking about cold case next time which is the short story from molly as she's the uh, doing her first winter lady job for the first time. Didn't you do an episode on side jobs? Side jobs, yes. Cold case isn't in that. No, it's not. 
No, we're waiting for briefcases for that one. All right. Ooh, I think I'm missing a few Dresden stories. Uh-huh. Would you send me these things? No, oh, I haven't read the ones that aren't in briefcases. Oh. Because I'm waiting have, for briefcases. Have you read Damn the case? No, I'm gonna. Oh. So you're gonna talk about it next week? Yeah. But you haven't read it? I'm gonna. Okay. I have a week. That's why <laughs> I do it every other week. Out. We don't have a we don't have a release date yet, because he has to do more short stories. Okay, now I'm confused. <laughs> anyway, I'll you can find me at, uh, at Jacob, <laughs> Jacob Ingalls on Twitter. Uh, I am also part of Great Scott, where we are discussing The Office. Uh, we are wrapping up Season 4, the next episode, and getting into Season 5. So it'll be a fun time to jump in. And So yeah, good times. It's, it's, we've got uh, Dangerous to Go Alone is recording again. Yay. Now. Uh, and Shylock's. And I'm I'm missing stuff. Oh, you got NerdFit. How's that going? Uh, NerdFit is good. I uh, it actually is doing pretty well in the feeds. Uh, but for the most part, I've just really had a bad two weeks when it comes to working out. So, yay. Yeah. But I've lost like nine pounds since I've started working out. So that's good. Yep. Losing weight is fun. (laughs) Not really. Losing weight is just looking at all the things you can't eat and going, oh. I don't know. I do it fine. It's easy for me. I do it a lot. Well, yeah, but you're also, what, 24, not 33? It's just calories. It's still, it's harder to do, because I used to be able to drop 20 pounds like that. Now, not so much. But we're way off topic at this point. (laughs) Uh, check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash broken jars. We have four Patreons now. Uh, so if you want to come chill with us and talk and all that stuff, you can be a part of our Discord if you give us $2 of your hard earned money every month. It's not very much. It's less than your Starbucks or whatever. So help needy podcasters by giving us money. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll make everything sound better, I promise. Eventually. Fine. Right. We we will shame Colin into getting a real mic. One that's not attached to his face. <laughs> but anyway, bye. Bye. Bye.